You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. I am a co-host of our Lawyer to Lawyer show on Legal Talk Network, and I'm here today uh, doing a special report from the Above the Law Converge Conference in New York City. And I have a co-host with me here today, Stacey Zaretsky, the one of the editors of Above the Law. Say hello, Stacey. Hi, everybody. Uh, and we are going to talk right now about online reputation privacy in the law. I have with me four panelists who just gave a uh, presentation on that. And I'm going to ask you each to go around real quickly and tell me your name and who you are very briefly, starting with Michael. Hi, I'm Mike Gottlieb. I'm with Boy Schiller and Flexner in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Lisa Garber. I'm Corporate Counsel and Director of Business Development for Capsicum Group in Philadelphia. I'm Kashmir Hill. I am a editor and privacy writer at Fusion. I'm Mary Rose Papandre. I'm a professor at Boston College Law School. And an old friend of mine. I'm glad to see Mary Rose That's here. That's right. Nice to see you, Bob. As I was listening to you during the panel today, uh, I, I kept thinking, I recently interviewed Cindy Cohn, who's the uh, head of the uh, legal director, I think, of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And she was talking about privacy at the uh, age of the uh, NSA. It leads me to wonder, is privacy really even a thing anymore? Do we have even any right to expect privacy? I I mean, I do think privacy is a thing. I think a lot of people are fighting for it. Even young people, um, I often point to Snapchat as an example of um, uh, young people who supposedly don't care about privacy at all uh, trying to protect their information in this uh, digital age by adapting or adopting this platform where everything gets deleted after a set amount of time. So um, I think everybody still wants privacy and believes in privacy and is trying to engineer ways to protect it. It just is getting harder given uh, how technology has evolved. And it is interesting you mentioned the NSA because what I find with my students is there's a distinction between what the government is doing in the name of national security. I'm not saying that everyone thinks that's okay, but there might be more of a willingness to embrace that um, compared to some of the kinds of things that we were talking about in our panel where uh, there's an inability to control what comes up when you do a Google search uh, about yourself or other material that uh, when there's a hack, for example, and your emails and other personal data might be revealed to the world, um, people obviously feel very very strongly that they should have a right to protect that information and control it. I think privacy still is a thing, but that it's very quickly slipping away from us. Um, for example, I I got married six months ago, and I received wedding gifts from above-the-law commenters. I don't know their names. I've never met them, but yay, I have a knife block now. I don't know who it's from, though, but people just randomly contact you somehow and find out everything about you and everything that's going on in your life. So yes, while there's privacy, it's not so much anymore. I think a lot of people would like to have the privacy problem of unsolicited wedding gifts. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, Cash's point about the Snapchat issue with young privacy advocates is a really great great point. I think it goes to Mark Cuban's app, Cyberdust app, that he advocates for, which has disappearing text messages. I wonder if that's the wave of the future, but it doesn't really solve the issues involved with, okay, what about when I search Lisa Garber, I get this many results and 10 are irrelevant. Um, How do you protect yourself? I think privacy is very much a thing. It is alive and well. If you look at um, 
the president's cybersecurity summit out at Stanford, um, Apple CEO got up and gave a you know, resounding pro-privacy speech about the different technological advances that Apple is trying to make to be more privacy protecting. And there's there's immense consumer demand for this. The apps that uh, that we just talked about explain that. But I, I think I think that the um, uh, that that the demand does exist in the marketplace, and the question is, you know, whether our uh, laws are going to be able to keep up with the technological advances that just move much faster than either our political or legal systems do. You talked on the panel a lot about this Sony hack, and uh, there was lots of talk of naked pictures during the panel. Uh, what what about law firms? Are law firms in danger of being hacked in that way? Are they being hacked, and we're just not hearing about it? I just wrote an article on this for my company's blog, and law firms are getting hacked too. Every, I mean, every kind of company but is getting hacked. But we're not hearing hacked. about it. Why is that? Probably good PR, um, good damage control, but it does happen all the time. They're a prime target. Their technology is just not up to snuff. And I think attorneys now, especially data privacy attorneys, cybersecurity attorneys, and that's what I did in a former life in private practice, they are thinking about those issues and selling that protection to clients. But the firms themselves who have vast amounts of personally identifiable information, all of those things, they need to protect themselves. Firms are getting hacked, but firms are, I think, across the board getting better at this. Part of that is driven by client demand, and so more now you see uh, clients who are either asking for or demanding certifications and a set of standard practices from the law firms who they hire. And uh, then you've also seen, I think there was some reporting a couple of weeks ago on uh, how law firms have been working with some Wall Street financial firms on information sharing network to share threat and vulnerability information with each other. So their uh, law firms are increasingly adopting, I think, some of the practices and standards that the sophisticated businesses and industries in the cybersecurity space. Any institution or anyone with valuable private information is going to be a target for hackers. So law firms are certainly targets. Um, But I think that the kind of people that want to hack them and get information want to do so quietly. And so you're not going to have the same kind of public spectacle um, that you had around, for example, the Sony hack. I do remember a few years ago there was a U.K.-based law firm that was going after people for copyright violations, for downloading, um, for pirating uh, pornographic movies. And Anonymous got very upset about this and wanted to um, go after this firm. So they hacked them and exposed all of their files. Um, But in the meantime, when they exposed their files, they also embarrassed every single one of the people that they had been going after for downloading pornographic movies because they published the spreadsheets that had these people's names. So it was kind of like a, a double privacy violation. In the name of privacy. <laughs> you talked a lot on your panel in sort of general terms about privacy issues. And, and this being the Legal Talk Network, I wanted to bring it back to, to lawyers a little bit and, and just ask, what is it that lawyers aren't understanding about privacy and confidentiality as it affects their own practices? Where are you seeing lawyers missing the boat on this issue? I actually spoke with a data privacy attorney from a large Philadelphia-based firm the other day and we were discussing how lawyers were, their lawyers were complaining about having to use a separate app to access their in-house email. 
They said it was inconvenient, and most attorneys just want to check. I mean, anyone just wants to have one simple box to press to check all of their emails. Uh, and that's actually a question that came up earlier in our panel about the Hillary Clinton scandal with her emails being all lumped in together. Um, I think that's one of the issues that attorneys are having a hard time with, is this extra step that's required to protect privacy. Yeah, I think there is probably not a, a, as great of an understanding of um, the needs for uh, adopting some of the cutting-edge technologies that exist out in in the non-legal private sector in terms of encryption and data minimization and some of the practices that have been put in place. Although I do think that the legal sector is catching up. I think in the sort of in the in-house world and the, the lawyers uh, for companies that hold a lot of data, I think more and more general counsel are aware of this issue and are uh, are working on it daily uh, or working on it regularly in part as a result of the large uh, data breaches that happened over the last year um, i still think folks have not fully caught up to the, um, the rapid developments in in the law and the level of preparation that entities need uh, to adopt in order to avoid these problems uh, from becoming serious ones from them. And in particular, I think, um, although people are starting to understand better the data um, that they hold, I think that uh, working through responses is still something where people are, are lagging behind and not um, sufficiently rehearsing plans and practicing them and exercising them. From the journalistic perspective, I've actually been kind of sad because I think lawyers are getting better at protecting themselves. Um, <laughs> you're, you, uh, as a journalist, I, I see less often um, lawyers submitting redacted documents that are improperly redacted so that you can actually see what's underneath. They seem to have figured that out. Um, and there seem to be less stories of you know a lawyer on the train between D.C. and New York having a privileged conversation with somebody sitting around them listening in and you know sending all the information along to journalists. So it does seem like um, it does seem like lawyers are learning. Uh, I do hope they're also using encrypted messaging apps and um, encrypting data both on their personal devices on, and on their work devices because they they certainly are targets. I actually asked you a question uh, alluding to the fact that this is Sunshine Week, a week dedicated to uh, enhancing uh, or pushing for government transparency and, and openness. It seems to me that even in an age when we're hearing more and more about the kind of the loss of privacy of individuals, it seems that many governments have been tightening up and clamping up on their own privacy. I'm just wondering what your perception is on trends in the availability of government information. Do you see governments becoming better at uh, being open or, or worse? Well, much worse. So this is more in my area. I don't know much about what's going on in law firms. But um, certainly the government has been very concerned about leaks and has engaged in a number of practices to reduce leaks. Um, and, uh, and this has been very de detrimental. I mean, first, obviously, they've been cracking down and bringing prosecutions against the leakers themselves. And although there have been uh, relatively few prosecutions compared to the large number of leaks, it's had enough of an impact to chill the willingness of sources to come forward. And many reporters have, uh, have stated this uh, problem, that they're having a lot more trouble getting information out of their sources who are afraid of prosecution. Um, in addition, the government has, although uh, uh, engaged in 
certain initiatives, you know, putting a lot of more information on the on the web and and others, are the more meaningful information that we all want, the kinds of secret programs that are going on in the name of national security. Um, it takes a leaker like Edward Snowden to reveal what's really happening. So certainly the government on the one hand has uh, embraced uh, in name the idea of openness and transparency, but we see that in reality they really are reacting um, and taking every effort they can to crack down on the flow of information they don't want the public to know about. There's been a case recently that's been very disturbing from a privacy perspective um, concerning stingrays, which are cell site simulators um, that law enforcement can use to intercept uh, phone communications. Uh, and this is something apparently more and more uh, law enforcement agencies are starting to use. And it's it's only starting to come out now. Um, uh, and the reason is that they were hiding the fact that they are using these devices. And the FBI would advise you know local law enforcement agencies to drop cases rather than reveal that they'd use these stingrays, um, which is which is just really unfortunate from a civil liberties perspective. And judges now are starting to frown on this and saying that law, say law enforcement agencies must turn these documents over. Um, but this is really um, reflective of a, a, an administration that does not comply with Freedom of Information Act requests. Every journalist I know complains that they submit FOIAs and get nothing back and that they have to sue if they really want to get something substantial from, um, you know, kind of a, a, a sensitive agency. It's, it's very frustrating journalistically. Why do you think that is? Why do you think government has been clamping up in that area? I don't know. I mean, it's 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 particularly frustrating in that when Obama came into office, he promised a more transparent administration, and it hasn't been the case. I think you know it may be in part just a a sensitive era. Um, you know, we've started. Uh, uh, we had Snowden. Um, you know, we're fighting. Uh, we've been fighting two wars, um, and there just seems to be a resistance to talking about a lot of what is happening. Yeah, there might be a, a, a reaction to the rise of new media outlets. Um, you know, since Obama came into office, there's certainly uh, entities like uh, WikiLeaks, for example, I think have made the government extremely nervous um, about information that does get out. I think, as I mentioned in the panel, up until relatively recently, only the so-called responsible mainstream media outlets were receiving government secrets and publishing them, but only after conversations with high-level government officials and with entities like WikiLeaks. I think the government is very nervous that it won't be able to control information that does happen to get out. And so that might be one reason. I'm not, I'm not justifying this. I'm just giving perhaps one explanation. But certainly, as Kashmir says, this administration has been just as aggressive, if not more so, than the Bush administration in invoking things like the state secret privilege to keep information out of court and keep it secret from the American people. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, uh, the topics that you all discussed, was this question of the right to be forgotten. I actually, in my own work, do a lot of work with sort of smaller media outlets in Massachusetts where uh, this often comes up in the context of somebody who does something relatively innocuous when they're, you know, they're young. A teenager gets arrested for drinking or something like that. And then it shows up in the police log in their local newspaper or something like that. And then five years later, they're out of college and they're looking for their first job and this is showing up somehow. And they come back to the newspaper and say, can't you just take this out of your archives? What does it matter to you? What does it matter? I mean, should there be sort of a balancing of the right to be forgotten? Is, the, is it essential that we maintain sort of a historical record as it was? Or is it okay to kind of whitewash the historical record a little bit to uh, take out things that are relatively innocuous? 
I think one of the key points to remember is that with the right to be forgotten, it's really a right to be delinked. And I know that we got a little heated on the panel about this issue, but Google, by enforcing, you know, being able to take down a link, they're not removing that information from the internet. It's still there. It's still available. It's just not appearing as far up in their search results. So really, I think the question is, how, what's the right process to figure out what actually should be removed from Google search results? And who should be deciding that? Who should be making those decisions? I mean, I know that's something you talked about at the panel, but what, what do you think about that? Well, so, you know, obviously this is not a, this is not a new problem. It's just made, uh, it's been aggravated. We no longer have practical obscurity. So it used to be obviously someone could get arrested in their college years, um, although that conviction would still be on the record and some enterprising journalist like Kashmir could go find it just as a practical matter. It wouldn't uh, for, for time reasons and, um, and otherwise. But, uh, but now it's a lot easier just to do a Google search and you can find it. Um, so, so it's not a new problem. The concern is that um, how are you going to decide? What are the standards? The standards that Europe are, is, is using this idea that somehow the information is no longer relevant is very disconcerting because it's it's difficult to determine relevant to whom you know why i think at the outset we have to ask ourselves why is it irrelevant that someone was uh, arrested for something during college now, if it's irrelevant maybe people should start not considering it, uh, but maybe people are considering some of this old information for a reason. They have to make judgments on people. So for example, um, I like to think about the dating pool. So if you're out going on a blind date, um, I certainly would want to know about someone who's been arrested before, things that they might think irrelevant. I'd like to decide for myself whether they're relevant or not. So so I think deciding what's irrelevant, irrelevant to whom? Um, and, and that's a very difficult question to answer. And I'm not sure it's administrable by anybody, certainly not Google, but even by a court. I just can't even imagine how you would make that kind of decision. So uh, as I said on the panel, I, I appreciate the problem. I, I really do appreciate the problem. I'm just not sure what a good solution would be. Journalistically speaking, I don't think that you should be able to delete certain parts of your life that are online that you find to be embarrassing. It happened. Deal with it. Put more positive things online. You can't delete the past. Just because there happens to be a law called the right to be forgotten, it doesn't mean that you should be forgotten. We're just about at the end of our time. Stacey, you moderated the panel. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts or observations overall or any further questions about it. I think that this was a great panel, and we kind of spoke about nude pictures a lot, but that's because <laughs> that's such a huge issue right now. People keep getting the most private lives, the most private parts of their lives leaked online, and if you happen to be taking nude pictures of yourself, they wind up online because that's the stuff, that, the prurient stuff that people care about these days. So what do you guys think? What, what should we be doing about the, this naked pictures problem? Especially as it involves lawyers. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, as a um, as a journalist, I tend to be a uh, you know a free speech absolutist, um, but I do. I, 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 there is a human part of me um, beyond the journalist, and I feel for people that have these very 
um, difficult Google footprints or things that are very embarrassing that they feel are ruining their lives and ruining their job prospects. Um, so, so, I, so I think it's difficult. And um, nude photos have kind of become um, the symbol of, of this, like a very um, embarrassing piece of private information. Um, and how do we deal with that as a society? Do we have a right to see it? Do we not have a right to see it? Uh, and one way that I'm seeing platforms deal with it is um, they've, they, they're starting to give people more control over naked images of themselves. Um, both Twitter and Reddit have instituted in the last month revenge porn bans um, where you as a user can request that the platform take down a photo of you. And so it's not a, you know, a right that's enshrined in the law, but it is enshrined in these platforms' terms of service. And so it's a really interesting, pragmatic way to deal with, with this problem. Well, I would, I would just say that the, the, the Twitter change in terms of service actually was prompted by law because California passed the most proactive revenge porn law in the United States that went into effect earlier this year. And Twitter's uh, changes in its terms of service, at least I, I think people believe, was in response to the legal requirements that California now imposes uh, through that law. And, uh, and California, as it often is, being this, the sort of standard setter for the rest of the states, I expect a lot of the other states will follow in passing similar revenge porn laws. But, but it is the one thing that's interesting about this area of law, and I think Naked Pictures sort of demonstrates um, the issue is that the social media uh, sites and outlets do tend to set sort of a common law through their various terms of use and terms of service. And, and you do see that even where the law um, can't fully protect people's private information, sometimes you do get sort of ethics that develop either with Twitter or with Facebook and different uh, terms of use and terms of service that those, uh, that those companies em employ. And as privacy becomes if privacy becomes more important, generally speaking, to the younger generation, I think you'll see those terms of service continue to evolve more towards a privacy-protecting standard rather than a free speech-protecting standard. Well, that uh, brings us to the end of our time. We've been talking about online reputation, privacy, and the law with uh, Michael Gottlieb of Boyce Schiller, Lisa Garber, Corporate Counsel and Director of Business Development at Capsicum, Kashmir Hill, a journalist at Fusion, and Mary Rose Papandrea, professor at Boston College Law School, and of course, Stacey Zaretsky of Above the Law. This is Bob Ambrogi. We're uh, reporting from the Above the Law Converge Conference in New York City. That concludes this special report. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.